I took some time with my family this last week, and so um, I will not be preaching for you this morning. Instead, uh, I have a good friend uh, going to be bringing the word to us this morning. I've just met him the last s- several months, and uh, but have grown to love this guy. Him and his family have just moved here, and they're going to be planting a church. I'm going to let him tell you more about that, but planting a church here in St. Louis as well. And We are always excited to see more churches coming to our city. Amen? Um, man, we want to see the gospel go. So he's going to come and, and bring the word for us this morning. I'm going to have him tell you a little bit about his church as well before he gets started on the message and to let him share his heart for the city as well. But this is Josh Wilson. Can you please welcome him this morning? Hey, good morning, Harvest Bible. Um, as Pastor Mike has said, my name is Josh Wilson. So uh, I know that there are quite a few Josh Wilsons out there. I'm not any of them, all right? So I'm a guy that you have not heard of. And I'll weigh in. You can say Merry Christmas after Christmas because 12 days of Christmas starts Christmas Day, amen? So you can say Merry Christmas. So you're good. We're good to go. So yeah, I'm, I'm Josh Wilson. I moved here from Louisville, Kentucky about six months ago with six other families from Louisville, Kentucky. And we're planting Storyline Church. We've had a few other families here in St. Louis that have joined us. So we are going to be launching our church on February 28th. We are going to meet in South City right on the corner of Kings Highway in Eichelberg, uh, Eichelberger. That right? Am I saying that right? Eichel Burger. So that's a weird name. All right. So Eichel Burger is where we're going to be planting. Um, and man, we would love if you have any people that are in that area that you know, family, friends, relatives that we connect with, we're not above meeting with anybody. So we would love to sit down, talk with them, talk about Jesus with them, and for them to come and be a part of our church in South City. So our desire is that we want to connect God's story to your story and the story of our city. And we pray that we would have the opportunity to do that with other churches locking arms like Harvest Bible for years to come. So um, Micah was very kind in sharing a little bit about me. I'll say he's been a great friend to us in our short time here in St. Louis. We actually got desks from you, all right? So we have these, uh, this office space that's literally being given to us right now uh, for rent-free, and we got our, off our desks from you guys. So thank you. You've blessed us already with uh, our short few months here. So, hey, here's what I want to do this morning, all right? So we spent a lot of time during the Christmas season, and rightfully so, in the birth narratives, right? So we're going to look, then we jump in January to our next series, so we're looking forward to the whole next year. So what I want to do is I want to live in the in-between for a little bit this morning, all right? So we have one passage that we get to look at Jesus' adolescence in the Scriptures. And so this morning, I want to look at Jesus' boyhood. And as we look at this passage, we see this theme of maturity that arises in this passage. So we're going to spend time in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 42. You can go ahead and open up there. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read through that passage, and then I'm going to stop. I'm going to work through it a little bit. We'll talk, then we'll move forward, all right? So we're going to Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. As we're looking at this theme of maturity, I think it's important for us to realize, all right, first, that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Jesus is both fully God and fully man. So there's never a point in Jesus' life that he frees himself up of his deity. He's always God. But at the same time, he's also fully man, which means that there is this process of maturity that happens throughout his life that you and I also live into. So what I want us to do is I want to explore, okay, what does this maturity look like? What can we learn from Jesus' life as we're considering our own life and our own maturity as we continue in this life that God has given us as well? Now, 
for us to be very clear on what maturity means. There's a lot of different ways that you can think about maturity. It can be sort of an elusive term. You have physical maturity where it gets a little awkward, right? When we talk about physical maturity, Jesus is a smack dab of that awkwardness in this passage, right? So you have that physical, you have physical maturity. You also have things like social maturity, emotional maturity, intellectual maturity. Then you have like things like spiritual maturity. I mean, you have all these different categories, that you can talk about when it comes to maturity. So for our instance, what I want to think about is sort of broadly, what does maturity look like in terms of Christ-likeness? All right, so what does it look like for us to be Christ-like, for following Jesus' personal life, his character, his service, anything that matches Jesus' life, I want us to consider what that looks like for us this morning And I believe that it it encompasses a lot of those different categories that we try to place for maturity. All right, so before we dive in, a a few years back, there's sort of this thing that went uh, viral on Twitter, right? This little image. I think it's by a banker. It should pop up on your screen here in a little bit. So um, there's this picture. I think this guy was a banker. And what he did is he's trying to capture the essence of what maturity looks like and the personal growth of this celebrity. So if you look at the picture on the left, you have where he's worth like $100,000. And then on the right, Jay-Z's worth $600 million. And he's trying to show, here's sort of what it looks like for you to grow and mature over the years. On the left, he kind of has this scold on his face. He takes himself very seriously. Then on the right, you see him a little bit lowly in manner, has a big smile on his face, just kind of a little bit more down to earth. And you see this process of maturity. And so this guy, this, whoever this is on Twitter, he captures this, it goes viral. And not only does Jay-Z, like do you see visually some of maturity here, he actually gave a speech on maturity and the way that he's progressed in his own life over the years, and as he's working through this talk, as he's working through this seminar, this is what he has to say about the maturity and the progress that he's made in his own life. He says this, the foundation of personal growth is knowing who you are. That is the foundation for everything great. Knowing who you are, that is the foundation for everything great. Now, I actually think that Jay-Z is speaking for the majority of our culture here. I think he's getting at the heart. Oh, no. There's an icebreaker for you. How about that? Tighten that bad boy up. Thanks, bro. All right. Sorry about that. I'm glad the iPad didn't break. (laughs) So, I, Yeah. Catching back up. All right, so I think Jay-Z is speaking for largely the culture, the voice of our culture here and now. All right, so remaining true to yourself, or as the youth would say, you do you, right, um, is the key to personal growth or self-actualization or self-worth at this point in time. Like, we make a really big deal about this stuff. I mean, that's why you have all the personality tests that are going around. That's why you have seminars on self-branding. That's why you can go through workshops that help you discover your own personal core values. I was literally listening to a podcast with a business leader who was talking to a sports leader, and the sports leader had gone and identified his personal core values, and everything that he does in his life is centered around these personal core values, and he's just being praised because he's been able to find who he is and live according to that. 
If you find these things about yourself, it's almost like you transcend the rest of humanity. You know what I'm saying? Like you've kind of lifted yourself above everybody else because you have this clarity about who you are and what your purpose in life is. Now, here's the thing. I'm not trying to downplay the importance of knowing who you are, all right? I do think this is really important. If you look throughout the Bible, it's very clear that God has placed his thumbprint on your life. You are uniquely and wonderfully made. He does not want you to be the next Billy Graham. He does not want you to be the next fill in the blank. He wants you to be you. He created you to be you. He has a unique purpose and plan for your life. I'm not trying to downplay that. But here's what I am trying to say. The foundation of the Christian life is not knowing who you are. It's important, but it's not the foundation of the Christian life. The foundation of the Christian life is knowing whose you are. Knowing who you are is important. Knowing whose you are is the foundation of the Christian life. And I believe that's what we're going to find in our passage here this morning. One author puts it like this. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and of having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers or or her worship and his or her whole life, outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. So here's what I want to do. I want to work through our passage, Luke chapter 2, and I just want to tease out this foundation of the Christian life, knowing whose you are. Then we'll move and we'll shift to some points of application, and then we'll move towards our closing, all right? So let's start in verse 41 through 42. I'll read it, and then as we're working through it, I'll pause and we'll talk about a few different things, all right? So here, verse 41. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. Now let's stop there because this gives us a lot of context according to what's going on. So the feast of the Passover is this massive celebration that God's people do every single year, all right? And the, fe- the Passover was this final plague that God used to free his people from Egypt in the book of Exodus. So going back to almost the very beginning of the Old Testament, we're referring back to this big ultimate moment that happens in God's people. The, the plague or the plague of the Passover was this punishment that God does on the sin and on, uh, of sin on not just Egypt, but even on God's people. It's just a judgment of sin. If they don't have the blood of the lamb painted on their doorposts, literally this, the spirit of death would come and take the firstborn of your family. And so this massive massacre happens on the whole entire nation of Egypt, and they free God's people. And so now what they do is they come and they celebrate this big feast of the Passover every single year. You travel with your whole family to the city of Jerusalem. Now, there's another phrase in here that says, according to the custom. They traveled, they went to be a part of the feast of the Passover according to the custom. And here's what is being talked about. Jesus is 12 years old here, all right? And at 12, it's called the year of discernment in a child's life. At 13, you're considered a man under God's law, which means that you are now held responsible for following all of the commands in God's Bible. 
So fathers at this time would take their sons and daughters, expose them to the observance of the Passover a year or two before they turned 13 so that they could learn all the customs and means of the religious life in the nation of Israel. And so that's what's going on here, all right? So you have the feast of the Passover. Jesus' family is going. They're heading to Jerusalem. He's 12. This is a very pivotal moment in his life as he's going and he's partaking in the feast of the Passover for the very first time, learning about this new ritual that is a part of God's family and life. So verse 43, after the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. And thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends, and when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him. After three days, all right? Like, hey, I don't know about you, but as a parent, this makes me feel really good. You know what I'm saying? Like, these are God's hand-picked parents for the Son of God, and they lose him for three days. Listen, even the best of us have a little bit of McAllister in them. You know what I'm talking about? If you get that Home Alone reference. Like, even the best of us have a little bit of McAllister's inside of us. So, moving on. After these three days, they find him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And look at Jesus' response here. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Now, so here's what's going on, all right? Jesus is found in the temple. Jesus' parents confront him. As if he's the one that's done something wrong, right? The way that they're questioning him. Why did you do this to us? Why did you treat us like this? Why did you cause all this anxiety inside of us? But what we see, and I think this reaffirms in our heart, in our mind, that Jesus is perfectly sinless. He doesn't take this and say, I'm sorry for what I have done and the way that I've treated you and how I've harmed you. No, he says, why were you searching for me? Why did you even have to think about where I would be? I've been with you for 12 years. I'm I'm your son. I'm your firstborn son. Like, if there's any kid in your life that's gotten attention, it's me. Like, don't you know me? Don't you know where I would be? The only place that he could be was in his father's house. Now, recognize that G- the way that Jesus relates himself to God, calling him Father. See, this is the foundation of Jesus' life. God as his Father. Being God's Son affected his entire outlook on life. We see this in the following Verses 51 through 52 says this, Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. 
But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. I think there's two words that are really important for us in this, these two verses that help us understand how God, Jesus being the son of God was the foundation of his life. Look, it says that he was obedient. Literally, he was obeying them, a phrase that's expressing this continuous obedience. This is, was the way of Jesus' life. Jesus' understanding of God as his father was the basis of his human obedience to Joseph and Mary. Because he knew God as his father, and he knew that God was his authority and that he was his child, because he lived under the authority of God, he followed the commands like obey your father and mother that you would find in the book of Exodus, and that was the means by which he obeyed his parents. Because he knew that God was his father, it led to this profound obedience in Jesus' life, this continuous cyclical pattern of obedience that was in his life. But it doesn't stop there. It also says that Jesus was highly favored. This is the idea of perfect development that is happening in Jesus' life. This word favor, if you actually look throughout the rest of the New Testament, is often translated grace. So Jesus was graced in his relationship with God and graced in his relationship with men. Literally, favor characterized both his vertical and his horizontal relationships. This perfect development was happening in Jesus' life. He perfectly obeyed, and as a result, he had this immense favor with both God and human beings that were in his life. And all of this was happening because God was his father. Now, you may be thinking, all right, so I've always heard that, the God is, that Jesus was the son of God. He was the literally God's son that was sent here on earth. We literally spent four, three or four weeks talking about this in the birth narratives. Not something that's new. But what is new is how Jesus declares God as his father. This was a huge thing in Jesus' point in time. No one spoke of God like this before Jesus arrived on the scene. And he's doing it at the age of 12. Now, here's a little bit of what I'm talking about. This is how radical it was. In the library of the Old Testament, there's 39 books. God is only referred to as father 14 times. And in those 14 references, the word father is always used in reference to the nation of Israel. It's never personal. Never, not once. In fact, it was offensive to speak of God in this way because he was commonly known by his holiness, his cleanliness, how high and transcendent he was above his own people. You didn't talk about God in terms of this personal relationship with him because it was viewed as irreverent. In fact, if you called God by something personal like Father, you actually could be brought before the entire nation of Israel and be stoned before God's people. And so what you have here, Jesus comes onto the scene and he is at the age of 12 addressing God as his Father. Never happened before. One year before officially entering manhood, listen, Jesus knew who he was. He was the son of God. But even more so, Jesus knew whose he was. 
and that he was God's son. And it was the foundation for, for the way that he lived, both in obedience and finding favor in his relationships here in this life. This identity as the child of God is only significant if you know the implications of knowing God as your father. There's this guy, Douglas Grisham, who wrote an article a few years ago on his relationship with C.S. Lewis. Any C.S. Lewis fans here? Love C.S. Lewis. So Gresham, he runs this company that actually oversees any type of work that's used of C.S. Lewis has to run through Gresham himself, all right? So any of his books, like all the Chronicle of Narnia movies that happened, all those had to go through him for any of the permissions for any of the religious liberties that they took in taking and like reworking some of his novels, they had to go through Gresham. Any type of plays or any other things, they all have to go through Gresham. And what we find in this article is he says he fell in love with Lewis's novels as a little boy. And after, the par- after his parents' divorce, his mom actually ended up marrying C.S. Lewis himself. So they were correspondents through letters. They ended up sparking a relationship. They, he ends up coming over. They marry. And now he has C.S. Lewis as his stepfather. And so in the article, he recounts meeting C.S. Lewis for the very first time. And so Gresham, as a big fan of the Chronicles of Narnia, always viewed C.S. Lewis as like this strong character from the Chronicles of Narnia where he has like a sword that he carries around with him everywhere he goes and he's like this big stout man. But here's what he says about C.S. Lewis when he met him for the first time. What I encountered instead was a bald, stout old man dressed in a shabby tweed coat and with tobacco stains on his teeth and hands. <laughs> here's what he says. This, is, this, would, this would stink if somebody said this about you. I was crushed. I was literally crushed that this was the man that I had idolized in my mind, in my head for so many years. But he says this, I was crushed until I began to get to know him. He recounted C.S. Lewis's humor, how he would walk into a room and he would strike with his humor these massive smiles on people's faces and he could produce these belly laughs that nobody else could produce in other people's lives. He would recount like these long walks that he and C.S. Lewis took throughout the woods, just talking about life and things that were going on in his heart and his mind and thinking through all these imaginative places that they could go and how he knew he exactly how to talk to a child. It was like C.S. Lewis, even though years and years older than he was, found a way to come back down to a child's level, and he knew exactly how to talk to him. He was straightforward. He took Gresham seriously. He said that Lewis asked me what I like to read and told me his favorite childhood books. They talked about Narnia as if it was a real place and engaged in his childish imagination. And here's how Gresham remembers his stepfather, C.S. Lewis. This is a profound quote. I had gone as a child hoping to meet a knight in armor from a fairy tale. I got something far better. Don't you want that in your life when someone talks about you? They have this idea or this image of you, but whenever they actually get to know you, sit down with you, you're far better than what they ever imagined. I got something far better. A father who understood that what children need most of all is unwavering love. This is exactly how Jesus experienced God the Father. Unwavering love. 
We get this from Jesus himself in John 17, the high priestly prayer. Jesus claims that God the Father loved him before the creation of the world. Literally, there's never a point in time that God hasn't lavishly placed his love on the Son. It's always been his experience. But he goes on to share that this unwavering love that God had for him is also extended to us through Jesus himself. This is what he says, speaking with you and me in mind in John 17. I made your name known to them, Jesus speaking of God's name before all people, and will continue to make it known. And listen to this, so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them as well. Speaking of his Holy Spirit that would come on us at the point of our salvation. This unwavering love that Jesus had experienced in his relationship with his heavenly Father through Jesus is now extended to you and me. Knowing God is our Father only has meaningful significance to us if we know the expressed love that we have in Jesus as he was sent to us. Here's the problem, though, I think, okay? I think we suffer with something like a spiritual dementia. We often forget whose we are and the implications of what that means for us as being the children of God. And here's what I mean. We play like this childhood game of he loves me and he loves me not, right? Like think about your own life and the things that take place in your heart and your mind. Whenever there's a time where you lose it with your kids or where you curse at work or that you fail to trust him or fill in the blank, then we fall out of God's favor and his love. And here's what we do in order to try to regain our status, right? When we are constantly, we, try, we constantly try to impress him with things like the way that we're doing at work, with the rule keeping by following his like his demands on our life or even like our physical appearance, our physical beauty, the way that we try to find favor with other people, we try to use that and show, God, I am worthy of your love again. And so we play this, he loves me, he loves me not game by I failed, I messed up, I didn't keep God's favor in my life, I didn't follow the way that he wanted me to, I didn't step into the thing that he wanted me to do, I didn't share Jesus in this particular conversation, I blew up on my kids, I lost it on my parents, Christmas was a disaster, I've fallen out of favor with love, but I can get back into his favor again by my physical beauty, by the money that I make at work, by the promotions that I get, by the way that I love and serve my kids. I'll go above and beyond, and then I'll make myself so good that God can't not accept me. And we suffer from this spiritual dementia that we forget that it's not us that have earned God's favor, but he's freely given it to us as his children. The key for us to live this Christian life is to remember whose you are. Remember whose you are. You are the son and daughter of God. His unwavering love rests on you. His love is not circumstantial, but it's cemented. It's like if he showed up at your doorstep 
and he had his mailbox in one hand and a bucket of cement in another, and he had a shovel that was put on his back, and what he started to do was to dig out this big hole, and he he throws down his mailbox into your heart, and he cements it around it, and he says, I'm making my permanent home in you. There's absolutely nothing that can remove you from my love. Just as I have lavishly poured out my love on my son, I have now given that to you through him and everything that he's done for you. And it cannot be taken away. And Romans 8 makes it very clear for us that this is true for us. This is what the Bible says. This is such a well-known passage, but take it in as if you're reading it for the first time. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Literally the things that scare us the most, the idea of losing our life. There's nothing, death or life. Neither angels nor demons, some of the most powerful beings in all the world. Neither the present nor the future, nothing that you've done to screw up now or the things that you're going to do in the future. Nor any powers of this world, neither height nor depth, literally nothing in God's creation will be able to separate us from what? The love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, God's love changes everything. Knowing whose you are is the foundation of our life as Christians, and it changes everything about the way that we live. When we fear and we and doubt and sadness creep in, when they start to question you, like, who do you think you are? What do you bring to the table? What have you done to deserve God's love? What are the things that make you so special? Here's the truth of the gospel. Your sin left you worse off than you ever could have imagined, but because of God's sincere love in Jesus Christ, he literally emptied his pockets. He turned heaven inside out by sending Jesus into the world to put on human flesh, to go in your place, to live perfectly, to die, and then to be resurrected so that we may experience the unwavering love that God has for us. That's what God has done for you. And nothing... Absolutely nothing can pluck you out of that unwavering love. Christian, remember whose you are. Knowing who you are is important. Remembering whose you are is paramount. It's the foundation of Jesus' life, and it's the foundation of our life as well. So, if that's the case, if this is the foundation, what can we learn from Jesus' life in this particular passage that helps us grow maturity as Jesus grew in maturity as well? And I think there's a couple of things that we can find in this particular passage that we can step into. And I think this is such a, a great point for us to think on this. Literally, the new year starts next week, right? Good riddance, 2020. Amen? You know what I'm saying? Let's think about, like, what does it look like for me to live with this foundation of knowing whose I am, that this unwavering love rests on me, that God had distinctly chosen, like, I'm going to place my love on you, and there's nothing that can take it away. If there's a thing that we can devote ourselves to in 2021, there's nothing better than this. Amen? 
So here's where we find it, verses 46 and 47. After three days, they found him in the temple courts. And sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions, everyone heard him and was amazed at his understanding and his answers. All right, so I think there's one thing that is particularly shared here, and then I think there's one that is implied. All right, so the first one is fellowship or community. That's the one that is very clear here. I believe the one that is also implied here is solitude. Community and solitude, or fellowship and solitude. So let's talk first about community. Here's where I'm getting this. It says that Jesus was sitting among the teachers, and he was listening to them and asking them questions. Don't you find it incredibly interesting that Jesus, being fully God and fully man, had questions? Isn't that interesting? He had questions about life. He had questions about God. He had questions about how he relates with other men and women in his life. About how you work and how you play. He had questions. And notice what Jesus did with his questions. He pursued the wisdom from a community. It says that he was sitting at the feet of the teachers and he was posing his questions about who God is and what he's done and how he's intervened in this world. Listen, if Jesus, the perfect God-man, had questions and he sought the wisdom of community, how much more so should we be doing the same? So listen, like if you've been coming to Harvest for a while, you show up on Sundays, and you're not participating in any type of groups, one of your first steps for 2021 is to get yourself plugged into a group. Because here's the reality. God has made us communal beings. It's incurable inside of you. You can't remove it. Because God has made you in his image, and our God is a communal God. He literally exists in community in the Holy Trinity. You absolutely need relationships in your life. If Jesus had questions, who was perfectly sinless, you who have sin in your life, and what does sin do? It isolates you from other people and God himself. You have blind spots in your life that you cannot recognize on your own. And the only way for you to fully come into this realization of who God is, what he's done for you, and for you to live and walk in following Jesus, you absolutely need community in your life. So listen, if you're looking for ways that I can grow in my intimacy with God, you need other people. You do. They have perspectives. God speaks to us uniquely. You need other people's voices in your life. You need people peering in and gazing into your soul so they can help you see these blind spots to help you become more and more like Jesus. You absolutely need community. If Jesus needs it, so do you. And the second thing is solitude. Here's where I'm getting this. 
passage says, everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Uh, I think what's being implied here is that Jesus spent a lot of time with God himself. Listen, you, you can't know a lot about who God is or know a lot about his scriptures without spending loads of time with both. And you see this in Jesus' life later on, right? I mean, you constantly see where Jesus is getting away from the crowds and he's going and spending time with his Father, where he's dedicating time on the mount, dedicating time on the sea, all these different places where he's getting alone with God. There's something unique here between these two things. I think they work hand in hand together, all right? And Coming back to this theme of C.S. Lewis, he has a book called Life Together where he says you need both of these things and you need them both to be something that is essential in your life because they feed off of one another, all right? So when you come to the gathering, you need the perspectives of the group of people that God has placed in your life. You become who you are around. Whenever you're a kid, you're like your family. Whenever you're an adult, you're like your friends. Who you place around yourself, you become like. And so you need these people peering in, looking into your life, speaking into your life so that you can step in more fully into following and obeying Jesus and knowing who he is more because these people that are bringing perspectives and knowledge of ways that God is speaking to them in their life. But listen, you also absolutely need solitude. You carry what you, what you get in community into solitude and then as you're in solitude and you learn what it looks like to spend time in God's word and what it looks like to pray and to pursue the presence of Jesus in your life and you do these things in solitude and you get time with God the Father, you experience this unwavering love, then you also bring it back into the community. And just as you need other people's voices in your life, they also need yours. And because of what you're doing in solitude, you now bring back into the community whenever you regather again. Do you see it? Like, it's this pattern. You need absolutely both of them. And I think Jesus hit it on the head because he practiced this in real life. He got away to be with God, his father. He knows that this, I am God's son. And he goes, he spends time with him. He gets time where he experiences this unwavering love. He immerses himself in the scriptures. He prays to God, his father. We even see at points where he's praying, blood's coming out of his, literally his skin because of the way that he's praying and experiencing these intimacy with, with his father. And then he brings it back into the community. He blesses people. This is the pattern that is set up for you and me. So here's what this looks like in my life, all right? There, I, there's this pattern that you see in the Psalms where you have evening prayer and then you have morning prayer. So you have Psalm 4. Psalm 4 is an evening prayer. And so what he's doing, he's literally praying his worries and his concerns into God's hands. And then you have Psalm 5, which is a, prayer, a morning prayer where he's praying literally the things that God has given him, the authority the responsibility that has been placed on his life. He's praying these things into God's hands and asking that he would be strengthened for them as he goes into the day. So here's what my wife and I do, all right? This, is, this sounds um, maybe better than what it looks like in real life, all right? So uh, it's not impressive what we do, all right? So at night, we think through our life, my wife and I, we think through our life, we think about things that have happened through the day, things that are coming up in our life, as our, bed, our heads hit the pillow, as we get in bed, we, we pray through these things before we go to sleep. And here's how unpre- unimpressive it is. There's times where we've fallen asleep while we've done this, all right? Like, I'm not trying to make it sound like we're super spiritual. We're just trying to follow these rhythms. 
So we pray these things into God's hands. He's the one that holds everything into his hands. We are finite beings. We pray these things so that we can get the sleep that he's created us for. Amen? So we do that, Psalm 4, then Psalm 5, wake up. And here's what I try to do. I've found through a lot of trial and error that I can't get very much great time with God myself if the rest of my family is up. So I try to wake up, and I'm not talking like hours before my family wakes up. I try to wake up about 30 to 45 minutes before the rest of my home wakes up so that I can get some meaningful time with God and his word and spend time praying through the things that are coming up in my day. So I do that, try to read through the Bible, and I have this Bible reading plan that I follow. Do it, meditate, pray, and then the rest of the house wakes up and it's mad chaos. We have four boys all under the age of seven, so it's madness. Whenever our, when the clock turns seven, our house is madness, all right? So that's what it looks like for me. Now, for my wife, like, and you may be thinking if, like, you're a mom and you have kids in your house, you're like, there's no way I can do that. I, I, I get so little sleep as it is at this point that me waking up before the rest of my house, I'm just gonna be a walking zombie for the rest of the day if I do that. So my wife has just embraced this reality that she's a pastor's wife and we have a lot of Bibles around the house, all right? So what she's done is she literally just takes the same book that she's reading and she, she strategically places the Bibles throughout our house and leaves them all marked and open at the same page. So she's walking around doing things with our kids. She tries to take in some time with them. I, Listen, I'm also trying to serve my wife to where she can get alone and not have the chaos of the home going on, but it's real life, amen? So there's times where this is what she gets. Like, we set, she sets a Bible up in the kitchen. She sets a Bible, like, I'm not trying to be crass here. She sets a Bible up in our bathroom, like, by the bedstand, to where she can have these moments that she's taking in the passages that she's trying to work through through her own Bible reading plan. Like, this is what we try to do. And then we have community groups that we've been a part of in our life. Literally half of our team that we brought from Louisville, Kentucky were people that we had been in community group with for about six years. And this is the cycle that I think you see in Jesus' life. And this is a cycle that we're trying to live in our own, our own life as imperfectly as it may be. All right? Now, like, here's my little encouragement. There, there's some questions up here for time's sake, I'm going to, you can pop those up on the screen. These are five words, like five questions I try to work through whenever I'm doing some solitude myself. But here's my encouragement for you as you're thinking through this pattern. All right, my wife has this book that's laying around, and it's called Present Over Perfect. I haven't read it, but I think it's a great book title, and I think it's something that really helps with the posture of our own heart as we're thinking through this pattern in our own life as well. I think getting in the Bible and praying, no matter the time frame, is better than missing it because you can't work through your own routine. Listen, if you have a routine that is keeping you from getting into the Bible because it's so robust, and if you can't work through the whole routine, then why do you do it? I'm telling you this, it's a terrible routine, all right? You need to find something and you need to get yourself in the Bible. You need to get yourself meeting with God as your father because literally it's the foundation of your life. So find yourself a pattern that is feasible for you to step into in this point in time in your life and then get in it and then get creative and don't settle for excuses and find a way that you can regularly get time in community and regularly get time in solitude with God, your Father. This is the pattern for pursuing intimacy and living out of the foundation of God as your Father. So let's close with this, all right? 
Just a little quote. I think it encapsulates everything that we've been talking about here in the last 35, 40 minutes. This is another passage from C.S. Lewis, this very C.S. Lewis heavy this morning. So this is coming from the Screwtape letters. The words of Screwtape, which is a senior demon, says this. One must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men, the speaking of God, and his service being perfect freedom is not, as we would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. This is a demon speaking, so this is something that's offensive to him, that God would be so lavishly in love with us in this way. He really does not want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself, creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own. Not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who can finally become food that they prey on and use for their own self-gain. But that's not how God is. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. God is always giving out. We are empty and would be filled. Listen, this is who your God is. He is full and his love flows over. Christian, the foundation of your life is not knowing who you are, but whose you are. And by knowing this unwavering love that rests on you, there is absolutely nothing that can pluck you out of his love. It's not circumstantial, it's cemented deep into your life. So listen, as Jesus lived and walked in community and fellowship and in solitude and he had this cycle and this pattern live into that in 2021 let's pursue intimacy with this heavenly father who has done everything in order to bring you back to himself may we look back on 2021 at the end and the last Sunday of December and say, I don't know if there's ever been a year that I have known God more intimately than the year of 2021 because of the way that I have pursued him and the way that he's pursued me. Let's pray. Father, we, we do ask that if there's a, a, a little hint inside of us of like, man, I want to know God better. I want to know his love for me. I want to think on, I want to live into what he has done for me. I pray that you would give us the discipline in 2021 to live into the intimacy that you are calling us to, that you invite us into in our relationship with you. There's nothing more personal than being called the son and daughter of God. And I pray that we would live knowing whose we are, that it would be the foundation for everything that we do in this life. We ask these things in Jesus' name.